I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients. Scott, we're back from a little vacation break. Indeed we are. Did you have a nice vacation? Wonderful. Thanks, Adam. How about you? I did too. Okay. So what are we talking about today? Uh, Today we're going to talk about screening tests, and you are the expert of the day. Uh, Do you have a case to present to me? I do. And are you ready for this? I'm ready. We're going to do a little role play today. Okay. I have to admit, when I'm like at a meeting and people say we're going to do a role play, I generally leave the room. (laughs) I've started sweating already. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. I'm the patient. You're the doctor. Okay. Doc, I'm 55, I'm healthy, and I'm only here because my wife made me come. Nothing against you. But I usually find doctors to be self-important know-it-alls, and I try to stay away from them. My wife made me come because we have two little kids at home. They're five and seven. They're adorable. And my wife wants me to stick around. That's what she says. She says I need to get a PSA. Tell me, should I get it? Will it help? Are there any downsides? Okay. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, What's your name? (laughs) Um, My name is John Schnook. John Schnook. I I think that's a good name for somebody who says doctors are too self-important, but okay, anyway. So, John, when we talk about cancer screening with prostate cancer, there is this blood test called the PSA that your wife asked you about or asked you whether or not you should get it. And it's actually one of the more complicated decisions we have to make when it comes to screening. And it's complicated because while prostate cancer can kill men, it also doesn't kill most of the men who get it. And the risk in screening is that we can find it in men who weren't going to die. And since we didn't know that they weren't going to die from it, we often treat them. And in treating them, we can cause harms. We can make them impotent where they can't get an erection. And we can make them incontinent where they dribble urine. And for some of those men, that's all for nothing. There is another option for men in whom we detect prostate cancer, which is just to watch it and see if it's getting worse. Of course, that creates a lot of anxiety as well. So a lot of this is going to boil down to your preference about how much you're willing to undergo to decrease your risk of dying a little bit of prostate cancer. But on the other hand, you may just increase your risk of having adverse side effects and complications. Some people hear all this and say, look, I want to do everything I can to live longer and want to do it. And other people hear all this and say, no way. If it's not clear, I don't want to do it. We could take that one step further and say, what about for you, a 55-year-old man? So you're otherwise healthy and on the young side, which means your life expectancy is quite long. And if there's a group of men who are more likely to benefit from prostate cancer screening, it's men who have a long lifespan ahead of them versus older men with comorbidities in whom they're more likely to die of other things. So I'll put the question back to you. How do you feel about getting screened at this point? Wow, that sounds more complicated than I thought. It is more complicated than many people think. (laughs) Okay. Well, why don't we move on then? That was a terrific discussion. And I'm hoping 
that by the end of the podcast, we've actually hit on a bunch of the topics that you've sort of brought up in that counseling session. Okay, sounds good. Um, so I'm going to start with the five points, okay? Go ahead, go for it. So my point one is sort of before I start, I'm going to put my biases on the table, okay? If I have to rank what I think doctors do sort of for the good of patients, and it also fortunately tends to be what I enjoy the most, number one would be treating sick people, okay? Someone comes, they're unwell, and we try to intervene to make them better. Number two would be advising people on how to stay healthy. Um, and that's generally pretty easy, right? It's eat reasonably, it's exercise, you know, whatever, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise a day. It's wear seat belts, wear bike helmets, things like that. Don't do, you know, stupid things. And also get uh, suggested vaccinations. And the expertise is probably not what to recommend, but it's how you relate to a patient and hopefully get them to take you up on your recommendations. And lastly, for me, it's looking for disease in healthy patients. And by that, I mean screening. Got it. Okay. I actually like that approach. I mean, we both agree in treating sick patients. That's why we do the STD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. What's your, so screening was third on that. What's your second key point? Um, so my second key point is to really underline what the definition of screening is and what the purpose of screening is, okay? So first definition. Definition of screening is identification of an asymptomatic disease or risk factor, okay? So what's confusing is that the tests we use to screen are the same tests we use for diagnosis. But when you're using one of these tests, it brings up different issues if you're using it for screening or diagnosis. So let me tell you what I mean. So for example, we use colonoscopy both as a screening test for colon cancer and also as an evaluation of symptoms of colon cancer, for instance, iron deficiency anemia, okay? So now it would be inappropriate to do a colonoscopy on a 40-year-old man without risk, or risk factors to screen for colon cancer, okay? I think nobody would recommend that. On the other hand, it would be totally appropriate to do a colonoscopy on a 40-year-old man who comes in with iron deficiency anemia. Great point. So we really have to distinguish those two when we're screening and when we're doing diagnostic tests, even though the test is the same. Exactly. And I think this comes up in a lot of things, that when you're like, when you're saying, I'm ordering this test, why am I ordering it? Because sometimes it also impacts on the way you interpret the, the results, right? Totally. Um, so that's point 2A. Point 2B is the purpose of screening. And this, I feel like sometimes I need to, you know, yell this at the sky. The goal of screening is to decrease morbidity and mortality from the screen disease. The purpose of screening is not to find disease. Right. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, those of us like you and I who've been in practice for a long time, we've seen many patients get diagnosed and we know the pain that comes from right. being diagnosed with problems, even those we can treat, right. like hypertension and diabetes, right. where we decrease mortality. Absolutely. And if we can't do that and we can't improve mortality or morbidity, we're just hurting them, really. Yeah. yeah. And I think this comes up a lot these days. It's interesting where I see it a ton is in uh, lung cancer screening, which is something that there is debate, but you know, most people at this point agree that for high-risk people, you know, with the appropriate smoking history, that that uh, lung cancer screening is at least reasonable to do. But you do find a lot of off-target 
abnormalities on there. And the number of people who then you have to counsel on, what do we do about that adrenal adenoma? What do we do about that you know, gastric polyp? Um, becomes difficult. Not to mention the seven zillion lung nodules that have to be followed <laughs> Q3 and Q6 months. <laughs> exactly. All right. What's your third point? So my third key point is I'm going to cheat on this one. Okay. So there are five points that people always talk about um, when they describe what it takes to make a good screening test. And so these five points are going to be points three, four, and five for me. Okay. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. This is, I'm glad I'm not trying to do the math right. on this, this one. Is, this is medicine, not math. So you need all five of these points for a good screening test. The most important are the first and the last. So number one, do no harm, okay? There's always a lot of ways that we can harm people with screening tests, and I think we'll probably get into those a little bit later. Number two, the burden of disease must be sufficient to warrant investigation, okay? Which means we don't screen for things like, I don't know, like, like plant our warts, okay? Um, but we do screen for things that might kill people. A good screening test, or let's just say a screening test, must detect disease in the preclinical stage, right? Because that's what screening is. Somebody comes in, they're feeling well, they don't know they have a disease, and you're trying to find it. The screening test that you're using must be sufficiently accurate to avoid large numbers of false positives, needs a good specificity, and needs to avoid a large number of false negatives, needs to be a sensitive test, okay? Because you want to rule out disease. If your test is negative, you want to say you're fine, your screening test is negative, don't worry. Um, but you don't want to tell a lot of people that, oh, you know, you might have something, we need to do more testing. We should come back to all of these, by the way, when we come back to the prostate cancer screening and run each one of these at the end of the discussion. That's a great idea. And then my last one, number five, which is the other really key one, is that early detection must improve outcomes when compared to detecting the disease when it would naturally present clinically. Because if you pick up a disease early, but you don't help the person's outcome, you've harmed that person because you've turned a healthy person into a patient, you've stressed them out about some disease, but you haven't actually made them any better. I, I think those are great points, and those are consistent with the United States Preventative Services Task Force. Yes. And I, we, we should probably underline um, the USPSTF, which, God, could have a better acronym or For initials sure. or something. I think we both agree they do a very good job of vetting the literature and coming up with you know what we should screen for and telling us what the evidence is that they're basing that on. Because there are some A's and B's, you know, you should definitely screen for these, but there are a lot of C's where you sort of have to make the decision and they tell you what the data is. For Agreed. Them. All right. So let's go back to our case. Okay. And maybe we'll do what we just said. And so maybe I'll discuss the five points that you had as it relates to PSA testing. That would be great. And put in that context. So your first point about whether or not there's a good test is to do no harm. Now, the PSA is just a blood test. And so it'd be easy to oversimplify this and say that there's no harm. But one of your points is it has to avoid a large number of false positives. And there the PSA fails pretty miserably. If you look at men who get screened, their standard cutoff is four, though there's some debate about whether the cutoff should be lower at even 2.6. And if you look at the men who have levels of above 2.6 or four between those numbers and 10, so 2.6 to 10 or four to 10, uh, the number of those men that actually have prostate cancer is about uh, 25% which actually means three quarters of those men who have a positive test 
don't have prostate cancer. It's not very specific. And the trouble is your next step is often a prostate biopsy. And now we are talking about little harm. The other problem, of course, is the harm doesn't end there in that many men who have prostate cancer, as we've already said, are going to not die of their prostate cancer. There's some evidence that if you look at autopsy specimens of men in their 70s and even younger, a large percentage of men have prostate cancer. So we're going to diagnose prostate cancer. That's a real harm if the man wasn't going to die from it. And now you've given them a serious disease, a worry, and maybe even recommended surgery, which comes with more harms, potentially impotence and incontinence. So when it comes to saying you do no harm with PSA testing, that's not true. Um, You have to ask if the burden of disease is sufficient to warrant investigation and prostate cancer is a major killer. And I would say clearly that it, it passes that. And that gets us into trouble a lot of the times, right? Because there are a lot of terrible diseases out there which kill a lot of people, often kill a lot of people very prematurely. And so we desperately want to do something. And screening is obvious, right? We're brought up with the um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah, or sometimes it ends up being a pound of pain, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, The third criteria that you listed is screening must detect disease in the preclinical stage. And the PSA test clearly does this, uh, almost to a fault, frankly, uh, much earlier probably than prostate examinations with a digital rectal examination. So it passes that. And certainly earlier than symptoms, right? Where prostate cancer often presents with metastatic disease. Right. As as we're saying this, we're not really focusing just on prostate cancer, but urinary symptoms are not predictive of prostate cancer. BPH tends to occur in the periurethral zone and causes, you know, urinary hesitancy and frequency and all of that. And there's not a correlation between prostate cancer and urinary symptoms. So you're right. If it presents clinically, it presents with metastatic disease typically. So far, we've said we can do harm. So that's a negative. The burden of disease is sufficient to warrant investigation that would argue for doing it. Screening tests have to detect it preclinically. It does. Our next criterion was screening tests must be sufficiently accurate to avoid large numbers of false positives and false negatives. And there we fail a bit with too many false positives. Probably not too many false negatives, but... Right. And it also depends a little bit, you should say, on the height of the PSA. So it's possible that an initial screening test is going to show you a PSA of 15, and that's probably somebody who you've helped. You know, you've you've diagnosed prostate cancer that is still within the gland, um, but is high enough that you can say, you know, this is likely prostate cancer. Your biopsy is likely to be positive, and then the decision making comes later when you know what's the flavor of this prostate cancer. Right. I mean, two-thirds of men who have PSA levels of over 10 have prostate cancer. But I wouldn't want our listeners to think that if your number was between 4 and 10, not to look for it then. Absolutely. Because with a quarter having cancer, it's still too much. Yep. Um, And then finally, this is the, the crux of the matter. As you said, early detection has to improve outcome when compared to detecting the disease at the standard time when it would present clinically. Now, this is an interesting story for prostate cancer, but illustrates for screening how complicated this could be. The current summary of the information that's available right now is that it does screening with PSA does decrease mortality. But boy, was this an evolution. As you remember, because we worked on this together, there were three randomized trials that looked at prostate cancer screening uh, that were published in the New England Journal a while back. Two showed a benefit and one did not. 
And the meta-analysis that put all of that data together did not find that it showed a benefit. And so for a brief period of time, the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommended against screening. Reanalysis actually showed that the one trial that did not show a benefit was fatally flawed because basically everybody in the control group was screened. And when you took that paper out, it did show a benefit. So in the final analysis, what do we have? We do some harm with prostate cancer screening and we save some lives. And I'll just underline that prostate cancer, and I think we're going to move away from it now and not talk about it anymore, but it's a good example about how complicated it is to show that a screening test works. Um, you, You generally need very large studies. You need to follow people for a long time. And then things change because as our treatment for the disease changes, that can make screening more effective or less effective. The population that we're screening as that change, if people get older, if people get healthier and less healthy, that affects the the results of screening trials. So not only is it hard to have a good study, but a good study may not have a long lifespan as far as how useful it is. So you may end up with medical reversals. I believe you know something about this. <laughs> you Do you just not? Might. You just might. You know, I think it's also worth pointing out, uh, you know, if this was your evidence-based medicine course, that the uh, paper that was uh, subsequently thrown out of the meta-analysis because of flaws in it. You know, you and I looked at that at the time and were very concerned about the methodology in that paper. And so I think there's nothing that substitutes for a careful review of a paper, reading the methods and really seeing if it measures up before one just uh, believes the abstract is true. Right. Right. And the issue with that paper is that so many people in the non-screening group got screened, that there was basically no difference between the screened group and the non-screened group. And that's why the, the, the study was negative. Exactly. Thanks. Okay, so having said all that, I hope that was useful. We're going to move on to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Adam, do you want to start us off with fingerprints? Yes, fingerprints. There are no fingerprints. (laughs) Um, And if there are fingerprints, you're not screening, you're diagnosing. Because a fingerprint is a finding that has to be so specific that it makes the diagnosis. And because when you're doing screening, you're always talking about a low prevalence population, there's basically nothing like that unless you're, I don't know, screening by biopsying everybody. Okay, well, I think that's not common. (laughs) Uh, let's go to common misconceptions. Okay. Um, I have one to throw go at ahead. you. So how about this one? Failure to get someone to have a recommended screening test represents poor performance by the doctor. Okay. Um, so you're saying it doesn't represent poor you performance. It. You okay. It. And it's because none of our screening tests or maybe very, very, very few of our screening tests are so good that a patient is really making a bad decision not being screened, okay? Um, So let's take uh, mammography, for instance. We'll move on from prostate cancer screening to breast cancer screening. The number needed to screen to save a life with mammography is about a thousand. A thousand. Right. So now, if I recommended treatment with an absolute risk reduction of 0.1%, right, you would scoff. You'd say, I'm not taking that treatment. That's ridiculous. 
And about 60% of women who get a mammogram yearly for 10 years, let's say between 50 and 60, so about six in 10 of those people will have a false positive, okay? And the number needed to screen to overdiagnose a case of breast cancer, that's to find a case of breast cancer, which it really didn't matter if you found it or not, because that's never going to hurt the person. It was about 175, okay? So you get the feeling just from sort of hearing those numbers that you're more likely to find breast cancer, which is not worth finding, than you are to find breast cancer that's going to save a life. So if I play with this math a little bit, I believe this is similar for breast cancer and the other cancers we screen for, at least not very different. If we screened a thousand women, we would save one life. We'd overdiagnose about five cases of breast cancer, right? Yeah. And 600 women in a 10-year period would actually require some follow-up study you got it. Because of a false positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Holy cow. Right. And I certainly, and I'm sure you do too, um, you know, often I tell women when they start mammography, I tell them, listen, you're likely to have a false positive over the next 10 years. So when I call you and say you need more imaging, please don't get worried. And when I call women to say, you know, you need to come back in for spot magnification views, unless there's something really concerning that they saw on that mammogram, I will tell them, listen, you know, our screening needs to be 100% sensitive. That's why I'm calling you back. Please don't worry. Even though I know I'm calling you for an abnormal mammogram, you're going to worry. I mean, I just think it's worth pointing out two things here, that we're not really nihilists. And I know you're going to talk about that at the end. And these same arguments apply to other cancers, not just breast cancer, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And there are screening tests. You know, when I started that, I said that none or maybe very few of our screening tests are so good. You know, there are some things like cervical cancer screening in a sexually active woman. I mean, I would actually say, you know, you're kind of a crappy primary care physician if none of your women are getting pap smears. Um, Okay, we're going to move on to pet peeves now. Scott, you want to take that one? I do, actually. I have a really serious pet peeve with this. So um, it's related to what we were just talking about. And it's the fact that screening tests are easy to measure. You know, you can measure how many of our patients have mammograms, colonoscopies, PSA, and so on. And so because of that, it's often used as a quality measure for how good a physician is because you can measure it, right? The trouble is because the impact is so low, I would think it's one of the least relevant measures of physician performance. You know, let's face it, a symptomatic disease, a symptomatic patient is more likely to be sick than an asymptomatic patient, right? So if if we're going to help more people, we need to spend a lot of time evaluating the patient who comes in with a complaint and doing that well, hence our whole symptom to diagnosis approach, then we do Screening. I'm not saying not to do screening, but I just think these days we spend a lot of our time with checklists in the clinic and have I checked this and have I checked that and have I checked this. Meanwhile, we need to be listening to the patient and seeing what their problems are. And unfortunately, nobody measures that. So it falls through the cracks and it makes me aggravated. Scott, I think your soapbox could use a little dusting over there. I, I think it's. I think I've been standing out so long. I think it's quite clean right now. Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, my pet peeve is probably right up that alley. Um, my pet peeve is spending visits trying to fulfill screening requirements when the patient has his or her own agenda, right? And you see this a lot. You know, I've I've certainly done this, where you go into the office and you're like, I've got 
X, Y, and Z that we should accomplish because they came up in Epic as reminders of what I have to do. And after I've spent 15 minutes on that, the patient's like, wait, how about my chest pain? And you're like, oh, maybe we should have started with that because that's more important. Um, You got one more? I do, actually. It has to do with semantics. Given everything you've said, we really have to use the word screening the way it's meant. Um, I often see students and residents who use the word screening when what they're really trying to say is their first step in evaluation. Ah, got it. And I really think we have to distinguish those. You made that point earlier. I'm just emphasizing it in a different way. Screening is screening. Yeah. If we're not doing that, we're evaluating the patient. And then the question is, what's your best test at that stage in the evaluation? Yeah, good point. Good point. All right, clinical pearls. Okay, so clinical pearls. We're going to shift a little bit here and go from talking about screening tests and applying screening tests to patients um, to thinking about the literature that proves that screening tests work. We mentioned that studies of screening tests are difficult to do because we're talking about screening, very low-risk populations. Um, And so you generally need large studies with a good screening test. You need to do the studies before that screening has been adopted in the population. You need to follow the patients for a long time because you're generally looking at mortality as an endpoint. So there are three major major flaws, biases, which come up frequently. And we're going to walk through those, okay? These are maybe much easier to explain uh, with pictures. And so I might direct everybody to the wonderful book, Ending Medical Reversal, or to our upcoming um, Twitter feed that I'll post some figures of this. But Scott and I have done this for a long time, so we're going we're gonna to try to explain them. I'm going to start with lead time bias, Okay. So lead time bias is a problem in studies of screening, and it occurs because patients whose disease is detected by screening have longer survival with the disease than those only detected when they become symptomatic. This is actually pretty obvious when you think about it, right? So a mammogram will generally tell you that you have breast cancer before you feel a lump. And so if you compare women who their breast cancer is diagnosed at mammogram versus their breast cancer diagnosed when they feel a lump, even if screening doesn't work or if you don't treat those people, it's going to seem like women live longer with their breast cancer if you picked it up by mammogram, okay? So thus, even if screening does not help or does not decrease mortality, if you measure survival from disease detection, those screened will look like they do better. But remember, finding a disease and not helping it actually does harm. So to avoid lead time bias, if you're looking at one of these these papers, a population needs to be randomized to screening or no screening, and survival needs to be measured from the time of randomization, not the time of diagnosis, or probably ideally, the endpoint needs to be not survival, but mortality. That's great. So they can't compare it with historical controls. If a paper was comparing it to historical controls, the historical controls are being diagnosed when they're clinically symptomatic, which is likely to be later than when they were screened and you haven't shown a benefit. Excellent point. Excellent point. Okay, that's great. So I'm going to try length time bias. So length time bias refers to the fact that even the same cancers are heterogeneous in different populations. So prostate cancer, it happens to be another good example of this. In some men... Prostate cancer is incredibly indolent, and if it was a medium-grade cancer, 15 years later, a large percentage of that population is still going to be alive with no treatment. On the other hand, some prostate cancers are very aggressive, where within five years of the time of diagnosis, patients have often died. If you think about a screening test, and you're by definition, you're screening people who are asymptomatic, 
what group spends more time being asymptomatic? Someone with an indolent cancer or someone with an aggressive cancer? And obviously, the population with an indolent cancer spends a lot more time being asymptomatic than a population of people with aggressive cancers, which means when we go to screen people, the screening study tends to overselect indolent cancers compared to aggressive cancers. And they too then can look better than historical controls. And this too is made better with the randomized trials. So really it's study quality that is imperative when we're looking at trying to eliminate these biases. Length time bias is tough. It's it's less intuitive to me uh, than lead time bias, which is why I gave it to you rather than do it Thank myself. Thank you so much. Um, but I think lead time bias is super important because it also affects you in the clinic, right? Because what length time bias means is that the patients in your clinic who you choose to screen, you tend to pick up less bad disease in those people. And the people who choose not to be screened, the few of those people who actually develop the disease, those people actually tend to do worse. And so I think length time bias actually in some very subtle way um, sort of pushes us to be more enthusiastic about screening. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really true. Because yeah. every now and then I see a patient with advanced prostate cancer who wasn't yes. screened, yes. right? Yes. Presents with a PSA of 100 yes. and you go, oh my goodness. And now you want to screen everybody when they're 12. Right. That's also the chagrin factor. The chagrin. Oh, that's great. Have you coined that term? I think somebody else did. Just now. Okay. Okay. We'll give it to you. Okay, do you have another bias? Yeah, so the last one is um, overdiagnosis. So for every cancer, there's a subset of tumors that do not progress. Now, this is surprising um, because we think that most cancers do terrible things. And we also think that there are certain cancers which always do terrible things. I don't know, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, things like that. But the fact is that in every kind of tumor, there's a subset that are indolent that you know you can live with, I don't know, maybe not forever, but for 15 years, and then you get run over by a truck and it wasn't going to hurt you. The hard part is, is that these tumors can't be distinguished from the deadly ones on screening. And that means radiologically, sometimes even pathologically. So screening picks up these tumors and indicates their treatment, right? Um, We have found breast cancer. We need to treat the breast cancer. Thus, you label people as having cancer. You subject them to treatment without any benefit. And I don't know if the, this is the greatest harm of overdiagnosis, but it's a it's a serious problem with overdiagnosis, is that the people who you screen and pick up an indolent tumor, which by treating would not have helped them, um, they still feel like their life was saved by the screening test, right? They become a survivor and they become an advocate for that screening test forever after. And it's one more thing, which I think sort of biases us overall to be super enthusiastic about screening. Right. And I would just reiterate that they also still are, even though they weren't going to die of their cancer, are the people who are unfortunately harmed with no benefit. Because I've had many patients come in and say, introduce themselves, I'm your prostate cancer patient, I'm your ex-patient. And so they now view their lives differently through that um, lens. Right. And I think, you know, overdiagnosis is not a problem with the management of an individual patient. It's just a problem with screening in general, right? Because I have certainly sat with lots of people, um, you know, I don't know, Gleason's grade six prostate cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ breast cancer, right? Where you sit with the person and you fully know that maybe by treating this cancer aggressively, you're not helping the person. 
But you also fully understand why the patient, and maybe you, if you were in the patient's shoes, would say, you know, take that out of me. You know, I want that treated. Right. And you can understand it and it's reasonable. Cancer is a scary word. And for some of the people, you can't guarantee it's not going to kill them. So it's understandable. And you know me, I'd probably go ahead and say, do whatever you need to do. Right. And maybe we get to a point where our science gets so much better that we can say, you know, I can tell you definitively that you have ductal carcinoma in situ, but this cancer will not harm you. We are not there yet. I think that's likely with the molecular testing that's going on. I think we're not a lifetime away from that. Yeah. All right, Adam, anything else to add to this? Um, I maybe should add just one more thing because I think we naturally sound a little bit negative about this. So maybe just to sort of wrap things up with a nice bow. Um, There's, I think, no doubt that we save hundreds of thousands of people every year with screening, okay? Cervical cancer screening, lung cancer screening, you know, breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening, no question about it. The problem is, is that we also falsely reassure some people by telling them that they do not have a disease. Um, That's basically false negatives, and that's because none of our tests are 100% sensitive, right? Um, You may miss a polyp on a colonoscopy. Maybe the person didn't do a good prep. Maybe there was just a polyp hiding behind a fold. We also put people through diagnostic testing that they would not have needed had they not been screened to prove they don't have a disease, right? Right. And that's the results of false positives, given that none of our screening tests, or I should say maybe that all of our screening tests are less than 100% specific, and that we're doing this test in a low prevalence population. Um, And then lastly, getting to overdiagnosis, in some people, we diagnose and treat people for diseases that would never have hurt them, maybe because of the tumor or maybe just because, you know, fate would have it that something else was going to get this person in the next couple of years. And we've treated a colon cancer, which wouldn't bother them for 10 years, when in fact, they're going to die of an MI in two years. But, you know, and the problem obviously is, is that both overdiagnosis and missing things is painful. Yes. Right? So overdi- we've had pa- I've had patients, I'm sure you have too, who've been older, who've insisted on PSA testing, been diagnosed. Now they're worried. They get radiation therapy. They have side effects. And I know in my heart of hearts that it's very unlikely that it was going to save their lives. I tried to discourage them from testing because they were you know, over 70 and had comorbidities. And now they live with those side effects. And on the other hand, I have patients who died from prostate cancer because they weren't screened. And yeah. so this is a complex topic that's not easy, frankly. How do you <laughs> Hope, like that? <laughs> hopefully people listening will understand that this keeps us up at night. Um, so we hope you found this episode of the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in a fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. And, Scott, you are going to be excited about this. Okay, go ahead. Something new. We have a Twitter handle. Shockingly, it's at S2D Podcast. 
Wow. What's a Twitter handle? I was going to say, do you know what that means? No. Um, So please follow us. We'll announce new episodes on Twitter on this handle. We're also going to post some extra content. Um, So if there are things which we think will help the understanding of what we talked about in the podcast, we'll put that up too. We'd also love for you guys to interact with us. Let us know if we've made suggestions, if you want to correct us, or if you just want to chat, um, you know, and exchange messages on Twitter. We'd we'd love to interact in that way. I'm pretty sure you're going to be the only one responding since I don't really know how to sign on to Twitter. I don't know. I will. I will. If, if it gets too busy, I'll lead you into it. <laughs> and lastly, the music for this, the S2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.